grab your Bibles, if you would, John chapter 20. John chapter 20. I am um, looking forward to preaching this morning. I've been in uh, Fort Worth and, and the Dallas, Texas area a few days this week and about preach me to death out there. And uh, Them people love preaching out in Texas. I tell you what, everything out there is big. And uh, they like big sermons. They like you know everything. So they don't get they don't uh, they're not ready to get out of church. They come to get in. At least the churches I was at, good sized churches, wonderful ministries. And it was like that man years ago was preaching. And uh, man, the place was packed, and he was just preaching up a storm. And um, not a whole lot of people were helping him, you know. And uh, but one of the guy in the back when he was preaching, he said, uh, uh, "Stay on, Pharaoh." Just like that, while he was preaching, the preacher thought for a second, man, it kind of startled him a little bit, and he thought, man, stay on, Pharaoh. So he just kept preaching. About a few minutes later, the guy uh, said, it, he said it again, very back. He said, stay on, Pharaoh. And so that preacher thought, man, that guy's saying Pharaoh, I'm pretty sure. So he kept preaching for a little bit. About an hour later, he, he finally wrapped his message up. Walking out the back door, that preacher said, my he said, what a service. And that guy said, well, man, I really enjoyed your preaching. He said, I got one question for you. He said, I know you're visiting tonight. He said, I got one question. He said, uh, why'd you keep uh, saying, say on Pharaoh? He said, my name's not Pharaoh. And he said, because you wouldn't let God's people go. That's why. <laughs> so he was a guest Pharaoh because he had everybody captive there. Well, I'm not going to do that today. I'm going to let you go. But. Uh, I, I do have a word from the Lord, and I'm, I'm very thankful for what the Lord has done. Last week, last week we were in chapter 20, like we are this week, and we, we were at the tomb of Christ after the resurrection. And uh, we know that uh, Joseph of Arimathea, Nicodemus, they got the body of Jesus off of the cross, and they put it in a borrowed tomb belonging to Joseph of Arimathea. And they placed that body in there. Three days later, of course, uh, our Savior uh, was alive and he uh, came out of that tomb and those soldiers were like dead men on the ground. The stone rolled away and uh, an angel perched up there on the tomb and he's not here for he has risen, as he said. And so we have a great resurrection. And then uh, Mary comes in and, and of course, uh, some disciples come running. And they find not anything else in the tomb. Of course, the body wasn't there. Jesus was gone, his body, but the grave clothes were there. And the Bible says the grave clothes were there and the napkin that was about his head. And we preached a little bit last week about some things that those grave clothes preached, the message that it preached, and the Lord helped us. Well, then we come down to verse number 11 of John 20. Mary Magdalene stood without at the sepulcher weeping. Now, Think about this. Mary Magdalene, she was the same one full of seven devils. When she met Jesus, it changed her life. Mary Magdalene lived a life of promiscuity uh, and, and uh, just a, a rough life and, and a very sensual life. And Mary uh, had those devils in her and she met Jesus and he, he changed her life completely and she's a different person. And no doubt Jesus uh, had preached the resurrection even to Mary and the disciples didn't quite understand it. Mary didn't quite understand it. And so she, she forgot the words of Jesus because look at how it says it in verse 11. And she wept. And as she wept, she stooped down and looked into the sepulcher. So she's checking out the, the tomb and she's weeping why is she weeping? Well, the Savior's not there. Look at verse 12. And seeth two angels in white, 
sitting, the one at the head and the other at the feet where the body of Jesus had slain, had, had lain. So he was there uh, in, the, in the tomb and, and now he's gone and his grave clothes are there. But when Mary peeps into the tomb, she sees an angel at the head and an angel at the foot of this bench that Jesus would have been laid on in the tomb. This rock uh, place that would have been there, that they would have put his body there with all the spices and wrap. And there's a there's an angel on the head and an angel at the foot. I, I, I can't uh, keep from my mind thinking about the mercy seat in the Old Testament, the mercy seat. I believe this is a picture of the mercy seat when that priest would come in and take the blood and put it on the mercy seat. It atoned for the sins of, uh, of Israel. And we know that Jesus, as he died on the cross and shed that blood, he took that blood to the mercy seat, amen, and applied the blood. And listen, no longer were our sins, uh, we were under guilt of sin. We were forgiven. The blood was applied and he was the substitutionary death. This is a type of the mercy seat in the tomb. I believe a picture of it personally in verse number 12. Then we see verse 13. And they say unto her, woman, why weepest thou? So I don't see in this text in verse 13 where Mary is ever taken back with talking to these two angels. It doesn't say that she's fearful. It doesn't say that she's surprised. She just answers them as if they're normal people. So to me, that kind of uh, gives me the idea that angels, these angels look like two men in white. And she wasn't thinking about who these two men were. She was having a conversation with them. We uh, Just a few months ago, I, I uh, on Wednesday nights, taught through the study of angels. We took about 13 weeks and taught on angelology. It's so misunderstood and so messed up in theology on angels. Even good Christian people have a misconception about what the Bible says about angels. These two angels are in this tomb and having a conversation with Mary. And she saith unto them, because they have taken away my Lord and I know not where they have laid him. So this is a sign of unbelief. Mary says, the body of Christ is not here. Where have they taken my Jesus? Where have they taken my Lord? I've got to find him. I've got to go and, and hug him one last time. I've got to see that body one last time. And she is upset that Mary, uh, that she does not know where Jesus is. Verse 14, and when she had thus said, she turned herself back and saw Jesus standing and knew, not, and knew not that it was Jesus. And Jesus saith unto her, Woman, why weepest thou? Whom seekest thou? She, supposing him to be a gardener, saith unto him, Sir, if thou have borne him hence, if you've carried him away, if you've hid him, tell me where thou hast laid him, and I will take him away. Sir, if you would just let me know where you have taken my Jesus, or if you know any place that someone has taken him, I want to go and I, I want to see this, but I want to take him to his proper place. She didn't know it was Jesus, but by verse 16 she does. Because Jesus saith unto her, Mary, and she turned herself and saith unto him, Rabboni, which is to say, Master. Nobody had ever spoke to Mary like he did. And when he said her name, she knew. Her eyes fooled her a little bit. She didn't recognize Jesus. But boy, she recognized the name. When he said her name, Mary. She said, I've been with Jesus. I know that voice. And, and notice what happened in verse 17. And Jesus said unto her, Touch me not, for I am not yet ascended to my Father. 
But go to my brethren and say unto them, I ascend unto my Father and your Father and to my God and your God. So Mary Magdalene came and told the disciples that she had seen the Lord and that he had spoken these things unto her. What a beautiful story. Mary sees the resurrected Christ. By the way, the first person to really see the resurrected Christ that we know of was Mary Magdalene. Mary is instructed by Jesus to go tell the disciples that she has seen the Christ. He's alive. Can you imagine that message? (laughs) Well, look with me in verse number 19. Then the same day at evening, the same day of the resurrection, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, came Jesus and stood in the midst, saith unto them, Peace be unto you. And when he had said so, he showed unto them his hands and his side, and then were the disciples glad when they saw the Lord. Can you imagine? Sitting in a room for fear, and all of a sudden a body appear inside the room that walks through the doors, walks through the, walks through the walls, and the glorified Christ, he just appears to them, and they are scared to death. Listen, if there was doors there that was locked, there would have been a new door. I would have made that door inside the I would have ran out if someone appeared to me in a room, especially when I'm fearful. And Jesus shows up in the midst of these fearful disciples. And what calms their nerves and what makes them glad is the fact that he shows them the nail prints and the side. And immediately when they see that, they're overcome with joy. Here's my text verse this morning. Then said Jesus unto them, or said Jesus to them again, Peace be unto you, as my Father hath sent me, even so send I you. Let's pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity to speak for a little minute, just for a few minutes this morning to our church. And Lord, I I thank you for uh, this text and how it's encouraged me this week. And Lord, I thank you for what you're going to do. Lord, if there's one here today that is lost without Christ, I pray they'll come to that saving knowledge of Christ. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. What happened to the disciples? Here they are in this upper room. They had heard Jesus say before in Luke chapter 9 that if any man will follow me or come after me and deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. I mean, they had heard the voice of Jesus. They had heard the words of Jesus. And now, for fear, the disciples are hiding behind locked doors. They have been with Jesus for the last three years, three and a half years, and now they are hiding. They had seen Jesus raise the dead. They had seen Jesus heal the sick. They had seen Jesus multiply baskets of food. They had seen Jesus do many things, but here... Jesus is gone, and now they're fearful, and they're hiding. And fear, can I just say fear is a very powerful force. Fear can cause you or not cause you to do things you never thought you would do. We saw fear grip our nation in 2020. We saw fear, and what people, uh, they were so mesmerized and so controlled by fear. Everything we did was motivated by fear. Churches closed for fear. And we were fearful because of what we did not know. Some of the things we we did, we did just out of reaction and what, what we did. But folks, understand, a lot of decisions were made in this country was made because of fear. 
And you know what? There's a lot of decisions in the life of a Christian that's made because of fear. Fear is a liar. Fear can hurt you. Fear erects a barrier that dominates the mind. Fear depresses motives. Fear discourages the mission of Jesus' followers. Hey, the disciples, uh, instead of going out and proclaiming that Christ had risen, they're in a room locked up. Why? Fear. The Bible says, for fear of the Jews. Fear turns attention inward toward self. Fear defeats soul winning. Fear defeats preaching. Fear defeats gathering. Fear defeats our mission statement. Fear does all these things and this is what the disciples are doing. They're fearful. Now can we, can we uh, get rid of the fear that hinders evangelism? Yes. We can. And I, I want to preach for a few minutes this morning on that very thing. The presence of Jesus removes fear for those who trust and obey Him. When we trust God, when we obey God, it removes the presence of fear. Jesus suddenly appears in the midst and He says to them, Peace be unto you. Then He shows them His hands and He shows them His side and the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord knowing Jesus. Let me just say this, knowing Jesus and knowing His love and loving Jesus overcomes fear. I'm going to show you why. First John says, I believe in First John chapter 4, it says that there is no fear in love. Uh, what's it say? It says that perfect love casts out fear. So love to me, listen church, love to me is the opposite of fear. I want to show you some things. And, and my text verse is, is in verse number 21. As the Father hath sent me, even so send I you. I want to preach on, so send I you. The first thing about the need for us overcoming fear and being a witness of Christ and for Christ is this. The person of Jesus gives confidence for soul winning. The person of Jesus gives confidence in witnessing. I want you to go back with me in verse 21 of John chapter 20. The Bible says, a peace uh, it says, then, then said Jesus to them again, Peace be unto you. As my Father hath sent me, even so send I you. There is a peace that comes from abiding in the presence of Jesus. Jesus says, Peace be unto you in verse number 19. Then he says it again in verse 21. He said it to resolve their fear of his sudden appearance and their anxiety for their personal safety. Could you imagine the reason that Jesus said, Peace uh, be unto you to these disciples is because a man has just appeared in the room and the anxious and the, and the fear that came over the disciples, they're now afraid because this man just shows up. This man has just entered in. And, and later he gave assurance to his followers when he sent them on a mission. In uh, Matthew chapter 28 and verse number 20, he says, And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. So let me just give you this. Jesus promised to give his peace as we obey him in witnessing. His presence is real. 
We, we cannot overestimate, nor can we underestimate, the, the, the presence of Almighty God. It is a real thing. And peace comes from the abiding presence of Jesus. Hey, let me say this. Peace comes from the authoritative presence of God and of Jesus. Notice what he says in verse 21 again. He says, as my Father hath sent me. He was not sent by a church. He was not sent by a pastor. He was not sent by a politician. He was sent by the Father. There is just something about being an ambassador for Christ. We represent a country that, that is uh, far away that one day we'll be at. We, we don't represent this country as, as the United States of America. And listen, don't get me wrong. I'm a patriot. I love our nation. I thank God for it. And I love America. But understand, this world is not my home. So I'm an ambassador to another place. You say, well, who has given you that authority? God has given me the authority. The same God that sent Jesus is the same God that has commissioned you and me. It's an authority. He sent us and he has sent Jesus as an extension of his mission to redeem the lost world. He says, even so, send I you. So the followers of Jesus are sent under divine authority to reach the lost people of Jesus Christ, to reach them with the gospel. We have the authority to go for the lost. Here's the second thing. The first thing is the person of Jesus gives confidence in witness. But the second plan or the second thing is the plan of Jesus gives confidence for soul winning. See, Jesus' plan is recorded in the Great Commission. Will you turn with me to Matthew chapter 28? The first gospel, Matthew 28. Look at that last chapter. Matthew 28. I know many of us have read this before and heard many messages out of Matthew 28. But if you would begin in verse number 16, Matthew 28 and verse number 16. The Bible says, Then the eleven disciples went away into Galilee into a mountain where Jesus had appointed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but notice, but some doubted. And Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Now, here's the commission. Go ye therefore and teach all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I've commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Amen. This is the same commission that is found in different forms and different other gospels and even in the book of Acts. But let me just say, repetition is the key to establishing direction and building enthusiasm for soul winning. It is Jesus' plan. And you say, well, Pastor, what is Jesus' plan? His plan is to involve every Christian. So let me just look, look at everybody fixate your eyes on me right now. You say, well, pastor, I'd love to find a role in this church. I'd love to find a ministry that I fit in. Everyone can be a soul winner. And we really don't have an option in this thing. Because the way I read the Great Commission and the way I read the Gospels is this. He didn't say some of you go into the world and preach the Gospel. He said we should go into the world and preach the Gospel to every creature. He did not exclude anyone in this mandate. He did not say, now some of you Christians, you, you, you don't really have to go. <clears throat> he didn't tell some, 
some of the disciples that they had to go, he said, hey, I want you to go into all nations and, and preach the gospel and teach them and baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. So, church, if you are saved and you're breathing and you can fog a mirror and you're alive, you should also have a burden to go and preach the good news of Jesus Christ to every creature. What can I do for the Lord? You can be a soul winner. I'll never forget years ago, my dad preached in a church in Longview, Texas, or near Longview. And, and there was a man there that had no hands. He was born uh, deformed. He had no uh, legs. He had no hands. And he was in a wheelchair, a motorized wheelchair. And he uh, was uh, uh, just bound. I mean, he was, he was very disabled. And the pastor, before he introduced my dad, or, or before the service, he said, you see that man over there? And uh, my dad said, yeah. And he said, that's the best soul winner we have in the church. Now, the man has no, he was born this way, has no arms, he has no feet, no legs, he's in a wheelchair. And he says, this man gets on his phone and puts a pencil in his mouth and dials numbers in the phone book. This is a long time ago, and dials numbers. He just goes through the phone book and dials numbers. And when the person picks up the phone, he begins to talk to them. He introduces himself and he says, before you hang up, I know I'm a stranger, but I'm disabled. And I, I just, I go to this church and I just, I wanted to call you today and ask you one question. If you die today, do you know for sure you go to heaven? That pastor said, this man has led countless souls to Christ over the phone. And people would show up at his church and he'd say, well, how did you find out about our church? How do you know? He said, so and so called us and invited us and told us how we could be saved. Listen, there is no excuse why we have something so great and we don't share it with anybody else. So we, we see that this is an involving every Christian. I mean, total participation of the membership is required to reach every person with the gospel, Christians do not witness because they have not sent, they've not uh, been sent by lost people. And the lost are in spiritual darkness and do not see their need, according to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 3 and 4. So the lost are in spiritual deadness. They have no power to change. And apart from the work of God and the work of the Holy Spirit, they, they, they can't. And so how shall they hear without a preacher? How shall they hear the gospel unless someone goes and shares with them the good news of Jesus Christ? It is our job. It is our duty. And what an honor it is to share the gospel. See, Christians do not witness because they... Christians do go and witness because they are sent by the Lord. Matthew 28, we just read that. Uh, Mark 16, 15. Uh, uh, Luke uh, 24 and, and verses 47 through verses 49. All these say the same thing. Acts chapter 1, verse number 8. You shall receive power. After that, the Holy Ghost shall come upon you. You shall be my what? Witnesses. So the Holy Spirit comes upon us, and we then proclaim the goodness and the gospel and the good news to, of the world or to the world of Jesus Christ. So it involves every Christian. Every Christian. If you're saved today, we have been mandated to reach the world with the gospel. But secondly, it is to include every person. There is nobody that is excluded in which we should not witness to. Now, let me make a statement. I want you to look at me. 
I have friends uh, that I love dearly that are caught up and they read heavily after Reformed in Reformed theology. There are some things in Reformed theology that you read and you're like, well, that makes sense. But let me say something that does not make sense. How a God, a loving God, could send a particular people to hell. How God could just, and, and this is what the Calvinists believe. The Calvinists actually teach that God saves some, some hyper-Calvinists. God saves some, but then there's others that just, they're born and, and they, have, they can do nothing about it. But here's the amazing thing. I have yet to meet one of those that could do nothing about it. I've never just witnessed to someone and they said, oh, preacher, I can't be saved. Why? Because, well, God said that I can. I'm, I'm one of the unelected. <laughs> I've never been elected. No, no, no. Why? Because that's hogwash. That's what we call it in the South. That's hogwash. That's not crazy. That's beyond crazy. It is a whosoever will gospel. Now, let me just say this. This is not a Calvinistic church. This is a whosoever will church. Now, we believe in the sovereignty of God. I believe in the elect of God. I believe the elect are those that are saved. I believe in predestination. I believe in the foreknowledge of God. Hey, I believe all of that. But understand this. I don't know who's supposed to be, who is saved. And I don't know that. So guess what? We go to every creature. Isn't that good? Doesn't that make sense to you? Oh, it should. Why? Because we ought, if you're breathing, you're a candidate for the gospel. <laughs> it doesn't matter what color you are. Doesn't matter what creed you are. Doesn't matter who you voted for. Doesn't matter what side of the railroad tracks you live on. Doesn't matter how poor you are, what school you go to. If you're breathing, you're a candidate for the gospel. Every creature needs to hear. Every creature needs to hear the good news of Jesus Christ. Here's the third thing. It's not only the, the plan of Jesus to invite everyone and to preach to everyone. It is not only the person of Jesus that brings peace and confidence in this matter of soul winning, but it is the power of Jesus. The power of Jesus that gives confidence for soul winning. Now, here's really the meat of the message, and it's found in the text. God uses three things to reach people for himself. And I want you to notice these three things. I want you to notice the work of the Spirit. Look with me in verse number 22, the work of the Spirit. And when he had said this, he breathed on them, Jesus, he breathed on them and saith unto them, Receive ye the Holy Ghost. Receive the Spirit. The Holy Spirit came and filled the church at Pentecost. This would be just a few, just a few months later. It would just be down the road that the, the Spirit of God would come at Pentecost and would fill the church. And then God breathed into the body. If you go all the way back to Genesis chapter 2 and verse number 7, God breathes into the nostrils of Adam the breath of life. What is Jesus Christ doing right here in this upper room? He's breathing into these men the breath of life into the church. And what's he doing? He's commissioning them, but he's giving them a power. He's giving them a power. We cannot go out and be effective without the power of the Spirit of God on us. Now, let me just say this. Every one of us at salvation has received the Spirit of God in us. He indwells us at salvation. But for a lot of people, that's about it. They are so foreign to the Holy Spirit... And we have let people tell us all these false things about the Spirit of God until we've just, we're scared of it. There is nothing to be scared of about the Spirit of God. 
Some of you say, well, I'm afraid of ghosts, and it says ghost in there. That's, pro- that's not an excuse. We ought, to, we ought to not grieve the Spirit of God and quench the Spirit of God. We ought to utilize the Spirit because that's the power source. That's the power source. Notice with me, He breathes on them. And the Spirit came and filled that place. And, and, and of course, Jesus breathes on these disciples. His breath is the Spirit of, uh, into the body of Christ, the, the last Adam. So the church became a dynamic body of Christ right here. And the Spirit empowers the believer for an effective witness. We, we see that just one chapter over uh, from John 21. We go to Acts chapter 1 and the Spirit of God's already on these men, and they are preaching the gospel, and they're turning the world upside down. Was that in their own flesh? No, that was in the Spirit, the power of God. One preacher this week told me he's pastored the same church for 46 and a half years, started in a, in a store, and just begged. He's moved five different times in buildings and built. Uh, you ought to see this place. It's unbelievable. And I said, Brother Wallace, how did you, how's this, all this accomplished in 46 years? And he said, the, the power of the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God winning souls, prayer, just the simple basics. He said this, though. 90% of what you preachers can do, and he was talking about you young preachers. He said, 90% of what you do, you can do in the energy of the flesh and be okay. He said, you guys have the buildings, you've got the charisma. He said, you've got all these things to study from. He said, this day and age, there's no excuse for our churches not to grow. And he said, you've got all them things. When back in the, in the 60s and 70s, we didn't have some of the things that y'all have today. He said, but one thing we did have that's lacking in the pulpits today is we had the Spirit of God resting on us. That is a dangerous thing for us to be operating in the spirit of the flesh. The flesh will fail us. That's why we have so much immorality today in the pulpits. Men are just acting and behaving any old way they want to, living any old way, and then coming in on Sunday and preaching and, and, and acting like they're okay. But let me tell you, that's flesh. We need the spirit of God. We need to be telling people about Jesus. And and here's what happens when the Spirit of God rests upon a man. It's not his strength, it's the strength of the Spirit of God. Boldness comes over someone. It's the work of the Spirit. I would prayed this week. I got so motivated. I got so stirred. Some of y'all looking at me like a calf looking at a new gate. I I mean, y'all been like, it's the whole time. Oh, Lord, what is God under him? Looking at me like screen doors on a submarine. Yeah, you're just, just trying to figure me out. But I'll tell you this. I prayed this week. I said, Lord, give me somebody that I can witness to before I come home. Have you ever prayed a prayer like that? I'm not tooting my own horn, but you understand, divine, I believe in divine appointments. I believe that God puts people in our path. Brother Rodney, today was a divine appointment that you stopped by today. I was talking to my wife in in the kitchen yesterday, and I said, hey, Rodney's stopping by. I said, I'm a little nervous that the teacher is, is here and the student's preaching, you know. And she said, have you ever thought that God may be sending him to encourage you? I hate it when the wife is right all the time. <laughs> constantly just, constantly right. It, it was him to stop by to encourage me. Divine appointments. Divine appointments. But then we have those divine appointments that are gospel appointments. So, 
on the way from Dallas. I got a late flight from Dallas um, DFW on uh, Friday night. And uh, I'd preached. I was wore out. I think I preached four or five different times out there. And I was just saying, you know, and I I told the guy that was with me that took me to the airport, I said, I'm just going to sleep on the plane tonight. It's going to be nice. They turned the lights out. And when I travel now, they bump me up to first class. It's nice because you get up there, you get a little extra uh, seating because you get to travel, and, and I've, I've got so many miles with them and flights. So, you you know, uh, it's usually nice. You get to recline, and, boy, they'll, put, they'll bring it. Mr. Cox, would you like to have some kind of something to drink? Oh, yes, I'd love a Diet Coke. Put a lemon on the side. You know, you feel like you're important. You're nobody. You're like, man, I'm nothing. They only knew what I am, you know. Because I was just going to kick back and, and sleep. The Spirit of God reminded me, you, didn't you pray? Didn't you pray? Well, what's this sleeping? Didn't you pray that you, how are you going to witness to somebody? So I looked to my left, there was a guy over there. It's the way it is now that you fly. Everybody puts their earbuds in. And so I looked to my right, there was a man over there. He's watching a movie on his phone. He's, he's got his earbuds in and we're, we're done taking off. And so I'm thinking, I said, Lord, how's this going to work? So the one thing that never fails is getting your Bible out. So the lights are on the, the plane, they're dark, and so I hit my light. The only light in the plane that's on is shining on a King James Bible. I mean, it's wide open just like this. And it wasn't two minutes later that the stewardess came through, and, I, and she knelt beside me real quiet, and she said, that's a good book you got in your lap. I said, it is. And she said, boy, it's encouraging to see someone have a Bible on a plane. She said, I'm a member of this church and a member of that. And uh, of course, we were started talking. And honestly, we had, we had the best, almost like a church service in the middle of the plane. She started telling me her testimony, how she came to the Lord. And I started telling mine and started telling what I was doing out there. And I said, I've been preaching in this church and this church and just for a, a few days. And I said, I pastor this church in Greenville. And she said, well, I live in Dallas and I go to this church. And, and this is how God changed my life. And this is what, and she just started. And then she said, I wear this bracelet. And she said, I wear this bracelet. And it, it has a picture of a, a cross and it, or it has a picture of an arrow going down, a cross, and then a, 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 maybe a tomb. And then it has a, a picture going up or a, a, an arrow going up and she says I've had so many people when I've reached across them to to help they've asked me about that bracelet she said I wanted to be salt and light I want to be salt and light on this plane folks listen sometimes we get the idea that we're the only Christians left in this world I wish y'all get out just a little bit Hey, some good people that are still proclaiming the gospel in this nation don't let the media deceive you don't let everybody, well, we're the only ones. I guess we ought to hunker down. Okay, you've got the Elijah syndrome. Now, let me remind you, there's 7,000 that hasn't bowed the knee to Baal. There's still people that preach the gospel on United or on American Airlines. And we had just a little service there, and God reminded me, son, listen. When you're in the power of the Spirit of God, and when you're praying prayers like, Lord, put somebody in my path that we can witness and proclaim the gospel, I'm going to stick somebody in your path. I'm going to put somebody in. Now, and it may not be that every time someone comes in your path, they get saved. Maybe it's for you. Maybe it's for you. That was a reminder for me that we ought to be on our toes every time to proclaim and preach the gospel. Here's another thing. Look with me, and I'm almost through. In verse number 23, 
We see the work of the Spirit, but we see the word of salvation because he says, Whosoever sins ye remit, they are remitted unto them, and whosoever sins ye retain, they are retained. Now the Catholics have taken this verse, and they teach that men can remit sins. That's not what Jesus is saying to them. We know that, that, that no person has the power to forgive another man's sins. But the, per, the power to remit or retain sins is the word of salvation. So what happens is God forgives as people respond to repentance and faith. So if you are lost in here this morning and you don't know Christ as Savior, the moment you receive Him as Savior, you have been forgiven, right? Sins are forgiven. But you choose to not believe and you choose to go out these doors and you, you choose to say, you know what, I'll, I'll get saved another time. That sin of unbelief is still on you. You've chose. That's not for me to say, well, the pastor saved me today. The pastor can't save nobody. Pastor, I cannot save one person. I can't do one person and save one person. I can't fix one thing. But we know that when you receive Jesus Christ, as Savior, those sins are remitted. And the word of forgiveness is entrusted to believers. The believers witness to convey forgiveness to repentant hearts. And their sins are remitted. And the believers then warn sinners that they are forfeiting the forgiveness of God. Their sins are retained. It is a choice. So the word of salvation is what we're preaching. We're preaching the gospel. But then there's the witness of the saved. It's the privilege and responsibility of every believer to bear the good news of God's forgiveness. Jesus came and said that he came to seek and to save that which was lost. Luke chapter 19 and verse number 10. If our hearts beating, if we are alive today and well, we ought to, listen to me, we ought to be preaching and proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ to every creature. Here's the truth. Here's the truth. We have 20 weeks left in this year. 20 Sundays. That's it. The best I can calculate. If that be the case, and we have 20 Sundays left, then why not we as a Christian pray and say, Lord, I would love to have somebody, to reach somebody before the end of the year. And the first service, a bunch of people said, Lord had dealt with them about reaching a soul for the Lord Jesus Christ. Folks, we're running out of time. I know we can do more than that. I, I believe there's some of you in here that could, could do way more than that. But if every person under the sound of my voice today said, you know what, I want to share the gospel with somebody and reach somebody before the end of this year, could you imagine what would happen if just we got on fire and just prayed for God to bring somebody into our life that we may share the gospel? And listen, they're not always going to come to you. You must go to where they are. You must go to where they are. We ought to get inside of us today that the gospel still works. The message of salvation is still true today. There's no need for us to back off of it. There's no need for us to get, uh, you know, busy doing anything. Listen, we're about to enter into another transitional season. We are. We're constantly transitioning. 
our church. We ought to be called Transition Baptist Church is what we are. I mean, we're, I mean we, we do. We've been in several buildings. I think this is my third building in three and a half years, third auditorium. Uh, but it ain't going to be it. We're going to be in a building season. We're going to be in a transitional season. And if you're not careful as a church, you get your eyes off of the main thing. What's the main thing? Souls. Souls. Why is God blessing this church? Why is God blessing this church? I'll tell you why. Because this church still reaches people with the gospel. That's it. It ain't blessing it because of me. It's not blessing me because I'm just some special person. Listen, God's favor is, he's wanting to bless churches today. I believe that. And he's going to bless the churches that reach people with the gospel. Churches, let's be motivated today to reach others for Christ. 95% of churches today, I read this yesterday, Brother Rodney, 95% of churches, the pulpit never mentions the word hell. Never mentions hell. 95% of them don't mention hell. We'll, we'll, We'll preach a message on heaven and we'll sing songs about heaven, and I ain't saying we're going to sing a song about hell. That'd be awful depressing. But I'll say this. The message should be clear that if you don't receive Christ, that's where you'll spend eternity. Back in the day, while churches were people were literally, we called it conviction. We, we think the greatest time in our nation, honestly, the greatest time for revival in our nation was the 40s, the 50s, and the 60s, 70s. But guess what was happening? Men were preaching about eternity. They were not ashamed to preach on hell. They were not ashamed to warn people about hell. And today they don't even mention it. And we wonder why we have an ungenerate congregation. Churches have never been converted. They just Everybody thinks they're going to heaven. But can I say this? If you're lost in here today and you're not sure you're saved... I invite you today to come to a Savior that loves you, who died for you, he shed his blood for you, and he's coming back. 